As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Every election, we are bombarded and told that this is the defining moment. It is this moment that we have to get involved in. All of our activism energy is sucked into getting people incorporated into the state. Otherwise, we possibly face a descent into fascism. <laughs> as laughable as that sounds, I'm looking forward to speaking with our guest once again. Welcome back to The Malcolm Effect, Professor Horn. How are you? It's all good. How about you? We're all good. And today joining me is my friend and teacher and comrade, Christian. How are you as well? I'm doing pretty good myself. Good, good, good. Christian, take it away. All right. So I just want to kind of kick it off with the first question. I think oftentimes you hear on the left a common position that's held by some people is that you know, one should not cast a vote for members of the Democratic Party because of their insincerity and incapacity to advance interests of the working class. Do you agree with this sentiment or do you think how one should engage with electoral politics and more specifically the Democratic Party is highly contextual? Well, first of all, let, let's limit the conversation for the moment to the United States because the question of elections, the participation in same is contextually determined. I think that part of the problem with the U.S. left, which makes their arguments about elections so suspect and so questionable, is that in a sense, they plead inconsistent counts. What I mean by that is your lawyer goes to court with the client and he says, your honor, my client didn't do it and he won't do it again. I mean, that, that's inconsistent. If he didn't do it, then why are you saying he won't do it again? And so likewise, with regard to the U.S. left, they have a historical argument <laughs> that posits the United States as having this grand revolution. <laughs> this is the left, not, not, not just the liberals and the conservatives. This is across ideological lines. They say the United States had this grand revolution and established democratic rights that are very sturdy. Of course, they don't tend to necessarily engage with the question of enslavement of Africans, genocide against Native Americans, if only to just see it as some sort of blip on the screen. But yet, as your setup remarks suggested, whenever we get to an election, they say we're on the verge of fascism. So which one is it? Did you have a grand revolution that established these sturdy democratic principles? Or did you not, which is why we're perpetually on the verge of fascism. And I think that the left really needs to clean up its historical argument because it, I think it leaves the electorate confused, understandably. Just like the judge will be confused if you tell the judge as a lawyer, my client didn't do it and he won't do it again. Obviously, based upon my historical excavation, I do not think that the United States had a so-called grand revolution. I think 
that the United States was basically what happened in the 18th century was a counter-revolution. I even wrote a book with that title. I have another book that just came out about the counter-revolution of 1836, about Texas, how it secedes from Mexico in 1836 after Mexico, under a president of African descent, speaking of Vicente Guerrero, uh, moves to abolish slavery. And Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin and the other freebooters and pirates who ostentatiously affix their names to major cities, like their counterparts in 1776, revolted and decided to set up an independent country and then decided to liquidate the indigenous population and, of course, uh, create carnival for enslavers. Uh, Texas, as you know, today has the largest black population in the United States of America, not least because independent Texas, it was independent before joining the United States in 1845, independent Texas became a major slave trading nation. The Lone Star flag of Texas could be found off the coast of Angola, off the coast of Brazil, off the coast of Cuba, uh, dragging Africans to an uncertain, uh, unlamented fate. So I think that if the left wanted to persuade the electorate that these elections are serious and profound, they need to change their historical point of view and say, listen, voters, actually, the United States had a form of fascism against Black people and Native Americans before today. That is to say, the era of genocide and enslavement and then lynching and Jim Crow, U.S. apartheid. And the question then becomes, are they going to try to revive that system and drag us back to the past, but not only drag us, meaning black people and Native Americans, but drag uh, others as well. And so I think that's the problem with U.S. elections, that is to say, how the left explains how we got to this point. Actually, you already uh, started touching on something I wanted to get to specifically, which was Texas, because, you know, it's the subject of your recent book, the counter-revolution of 1836, Texas slavery and Jim Crow and the roots of American fascism. But I also wanted to speak specifically to the uh, gubernatorial race in Texas, where former presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke lost to the incumbent uh, Greg Abbott. And last time we spoke with you, it was on the topic of gun control. And some have speculated that O'Rourke's calling for gun control in the wake of mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, was partially responsible for his loss. And uh, Abbott's win makes for three decades of Republican governors in Texas, making it a very red state. However, as your book details, the deeply conservative and reactionary nature of Texas politics extends much farther back than three decades. Could you talk more about this history and how it has played a role in the machinations of U.S. fascism? And especially speaking about gun control and, and the role gun control had in equipping a certain settler population? Well, once again, let me start off with a critique of the U.S. left. I hope this doesn't become endemic in terms of (laughs) interview, but I'm sorry, I can't help it. Part of the problem with analyzing U.S. politics is that many of our friends on the left do not invoke the phrase that you just invoked. That is to say, settler colonialism. What else is there but settler colonialism in North America? How is 
the United States ultimately different. South Africa, where you had settler colonialism, Rhodesia, uh, Israel, Algeria before 1962, when most of the settlers uh, fled back to France. I mean, New Zealand, Australia. But because many of the U.S. left are so hyped up upon the myth of 1776, they rationalize this question of the invasion of North America and the dispossession of the indigenous population. Now, there are many ways to look at it. You could call it racism. You could call it white supremacy. I wrote a piece that I recommend to your audience called Against Left-Wing White Nationalism. That's another way of looking at it. It's a kind of left-wing white nationalism. But another way to look at it is class collaboration. In my book on the 16th century, I talked about when London first invaded what they called North Carolina in the 1580s. It was a, a classic class collaborationist project between Europeans of various class backgrounds, basically backed by the elite. And they were uniting on the basis of mutual benefit, uh, that is to say, dispossessing the indigenous, and then with a lot of luck and a little pluck, uh, they could arrange to kidnap Africans and get them to work for free. Now, that created what's called the so-called American dream, because we have to acknowledge that Many of these settlers were poor once they got here, but because of the exploitative system, they were able to become less poor, sometimes affluent. And it's also fair to suggest that the United States, or I should say settler colonialism in North America, when it was launched, did seek to elude and evade the religious tensions that have been racking Europe, that is to say between Protestants and Catholics. I'm sure you know about Henry VIII and his breaking away from the Catholic Church for various reasons in the 1530s and how that leads to religious wars. And we all know about the conflict between Christians and those who are Jewish. We know about the conflict between Muslims, Christians, and It's fair to say that the United States, not necessarily because they were more enlightened, but because they had formidable foes to confront in terms of rambunctious indigenous populations, uh, they were seeking any warm body they could find to recruit to fight these Native Americans and keep the Africans in line. And so you had the creation of this so-called white identity, militarized identity politics is what I call it that leads to the creation of whiteness. That is to say, uh, magically, once these Europeans cross the Atlantic, they assume this new identity. And and of course, it it still retains its religious roots, which is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to confront. It retains a kind of irrationality. I mean, for example, if you're a Lebanese Christian, like former presidential candidate Ralph Nader, you can be white. If you're a Lebanese Muslim, you're third world. I mean, this, this is nonsense. I mean, you could be living next door to each other in Beirut, but once you come over here, you, you get various privileges based upon your religious orientation. So that leads us to Texas, which illustrates many of the points that I was just seeking to make about the origins of settler colonialism. That is to say, it's a class collaborationist project. And what, what makes 
Texas politics and U.S. politics so devilish is that if you look at Texas, as I do in my book, and you look at the Native American question, you see that there are two major factions amongst the settlers. There is a faction that feels that the indigenous population should be placed on reservations. And that, of course, leads us to the origins of what used to be called Indian Territory, now Oklahoma, which was supposed to be the land of the Indians for as long as the rivers shall flow and the grass shall grow. So there's the reservation faction. And then there's the liquidation extermination factor faction. And of course, it's the latter that wins out in Texas. But what's striking, I'm afraid to say, is that oftentimes those further down on the class ladder were much more in favor of liquidation, extermination. That is to say that it wasn't as if the 1% was in favor of liquidation and the 99% were in favor of reservations. It wasn't that simple. And that's what makes it so difficult today to construct class-based alliances in the United States amongst the descendants of the settlers. Because if you look at the Trump base, if you look at the 75 million who voted for Trump in 2020, and it's a replica of the coalition that tried to execute a coup on January 6, 2021 in Washington in order to keep him in power. It's a class collaboration. You have chief executive officers of corporations who fly in on private jets. You have shopkeepers. You have military veterans. You have simple workers. You have police officers, etc. It's a class collaborationist project. And so likewise, in Texas, when there was this effort to liquidate the indigenous population, it was not just done through organized state function, state functioning death squads like the Texas Rangers, who you may know have a baseball team in Dallas named after them. I mean, you had this mm -hmm. significant controversy about the Washington football team being called the Redskins. Somebody should complain about this baseball mm -hmm. team named after a death squad, basically. But it wasn't just the state-sanctioned death squads. It was, a, it was sort of a grassroots effort, which, of course, leads us to arming the settlers, which leads us actually to the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, uh, which helps to justify and rationalize the fact that in Texas you have open carry. I mean, it's like a throwback to the 19th century in terms of people uh, being able to carry weapons. And that's an expression of the fact that there was this desire to arm settlers so that they could be in a position to liquidate Native Americans and keep the Africans in line. And that particular ethos has not disappeared in 2022. Now, I have to choose my words carefully here because after Beto O'Rourke, uh, after the Uvalde massacre in May 2022, where you have these children killed by this young man, I, <laughs> I had the temerity to say that Beto O'Rourke did a good thing when he got in the face of Governor Greg Abbott when Greg Abbott was having a press conference. Oh, why did I do that? These ultra leftists said, uh, I'm endorsing Beto O'Rourke. It reminds me of, of the Red Scare, where 
during the United States, where if the communists said that they were against tooth decay, you had to be in favor of tooth decay. You to take any, any positions. Otherwise, you become suspect. So now with our friends on the left, even so, I guess if 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 and I don't exaggerate, if you have some Democratic Party politician who says, "Well, I think Gerald Horn is a good scholar," I guess I should denounce that politician. Why are you saying Gerald Horn is a good scholar? I mean, this is, this is, this is nonsense. But this this is the twist that these some of the, our friends on the left uh, twist themselves like pretzels in in order to um, uh, avoid talking about settler colonialism to avoid talking about class collaboration, et cetera. And so Texas, there's a book. I was having second thoughts about mentioning this book because I'm about to make a criticism of it. And I think the author is well-intentioned. But there's a book called Blue Texas. It's, it's about how Texas is on the verge of uh, ousting the Republicans. And that book was written some years ago. And we're still waiting <laughs> because I don't think that the author, based upon his research is really familiar with the history of Texas, deep genocidal impulse that helped to create this state. It reminds me of, of what the bourgeois analysts uh, used to say about Brazil, that it's the country of the future and it always will be. Well, Texas is on the verge ousting the Republicans, and some might say it always will be. Now, I won't go that far because I think they will, but don't expect it necessarily in the next cycle electorally. Mm-hmm. A, I guess there's a couple of things I want to I want to follow up with. Uh, first of all, I want to say when you started talking about the uh, Red Scare thing, it made me think of this like clip I saw recently from this video from the era of McCarthyism, in which they were talking about they were trying to give examples for people to identify communists, and they said if they repeat communist propaganda, then they may be a communist, and then or if they hold beliefs that are in line with communist propaganda, they may be a communist. And then you see some a video of, of people marching in the streets and one of the signs says, like, down with the KKK, as oh, if, right. yeah, yeah, if, uh, as if uh, being against white supremacist hate groups uh, makes you a communist by default. But I actually wanted to ask something. This is kind of veering off of the intended topic of the show, but it did bring up something interesting and something that's been a relevant conversation it was the kind of irrationality and the religiosity that is often tied into right-wing politics and the right the irrationality of it. And there's this Parenti quote from Black Shirts and Reds where he says, much of politics is the rational manipulation of the irrational. And I wanted to get your thoughts on if you think irrationality as like kind of political tool is something that really belongs to the right, or if it's something that can be used by the left. And I guess I'm also talking about the larger question of religion as well. Is religiosity in politics something that is right wing or is there any possibility of religiosity on the countering with religiosity on the left? Well, that's that's, that's a question that's complex and difficult to answer. What I mean is that as you probably know, in the black community, there's this tradition of these black Protestants and Martin Luther King, of course, was a black Protestant. And, mm-hmm. You know, they lead these anti-Jim Crow movements. However, as I've tried to show historically, it was not inevitable that these black Protestants would assume hegemony 
in terms of the anti-Jim Crow movement. They assume hegemony in the 1950s is a product of complex calculations. Now, let me also mention another point before we uh, come before I return to the 1950s. You have scholarship that suggests that the Protestant faith is not necessarily dominant amongst the enslaved Africans before 1865, that it only becomes dominant during the Jim Crow era. And to a degree that's understandable, as you probably know, let me speak elliptically here, there's this controversy in the United States and Black Americans about who's responsible for the slave trade. Now, you would think Mm -hmm. that these Black Americans, like myself, for example, who carry these British names, who speak English, whose parents were Protestant, Christian, you might think that, oh, okay, let us infer from that chain of circumstances that Protestants in London were mostly responsible for the slave trade to what is now the United States. But for some reason, that's not the, that's not the analysis of uh, other religious groupings, shall we say, elliptically or blamed for the slave trade. And I, I think part of the issue is that the people don't want to come to... This, re, this religiosity is so deep and so intense nowadays, and then it, it gets so much credit. I, I was watching... I, I'm speaking to you from Los Angeles, and so for various reasons, I, I don't have a television at home, but I have one in this hotel room. So during the elections, I was watching MSNBC. I noticed that some of the black commentators, almost casually, they, they talk about their religiosity, their being Baptists or Protestants. Mm-hmm. And I was I, that struck me because it's sort of normalized to a degree. But anyway, now let me re- return to the 1950s. So what happens in the 1950s, of course, is that the left-wing folks like Paul Robeson are tossed overboard as part of this complex calculation of doing an agonizing retreat from the more horrible aspects of Jim Crow because the United States is under pressure internationally. It's portraying itself as a paragon of human rights virtue and the ideological contestation with the socialist camp, but having difficulty in doing so because of US apartheid and Jim Crow. It's difficult to appeal to surging African nations surging to independence, Caribbean nations surging to independence as long as Jim Crow is the law of the land. There's even a practical problem. In fact, my next book, which will be out in a few months, deals with Washington, D.C. in the 20th century. It talks about all the problems that Washington has when Jim Crow is the law of the land, when you have Nigerian students coming to Howard University, the historically black university in Washington, or Jamaican students, etc. After a while, the State Department says, maybe we should give these African students and Caribbean students a lapel pin that they can wear so they can go to restaurants and not be harassed or check into hotels and they can be distinguished from black Americans, you see. Obviously, that was not tenable. That was not sustainable. So the United States makes this agonizing retreat from Jim Crow but the price of the ticket is throwing the left overboard, which creates an ideological vacuum, which not only allows Protestant Christians to attain a kind of 
hegemony in terms of the anti-Jim Crow movement, uh, but it also gives a boost to Islam, which takes off in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. uh, Minister Malcolm X, that's because, of course, the Nation of Islam had been discredited to a certain extent during World War II. See my book, Facing the Rising Sun, African-Americans, Japan, and the rise of Afro-Asian solidarity, because they were all pro, all the black, most of the black nationalists were pro-Tokyo, pro-Japan, because Japan was the, quote, champion of the colored races, unquote. And then many of them served terms in jail during World War II because they refused to break with Tokyo. Then the United States dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, August 6th and August 9th, 1945. Japan surrenders and it loses its luster as an oppositional nation that black nationalists could relate to. And then you see, then they begin to reorient towards Africa because then Africa is surging to independence and it becomes, in their estimation, a more legitimate symbol uh, to identify with. I say all that to say that this rising and this ideological hegemony of religious figures was hardly inevitable. It was based upon a complexity mm -hmm. of variables that I've just tried to outline. And I do think that there is a certain kind of irrationality in the U.S. system. I mean, for example, in terms of rationality, you know, you have the one drop rule in terms of uh, black Americans. I mean, you can look like Madonna, George W. Bush, but if you have the faintest African ancestry, you're defined as black. Now, mm -hmm. obviously, historically, that helps to justify enslaving more people. As a matter of fact, uh, you have cases, folks, um, European immigrants landing in New Orleans and unscrupulous slave dealers claiming that they're actually black and then sending them off to work on the sugar plantation. Whereas you don't have the one drop rule with regard to in indigenous people. That's why you have all these celebrities claiming to be part Cherokee. Cher, Senator Elizabeth Warren, because you, you, you can maintain your whiteness even if you have Native American ancestry. And of course, that has right. a material basis too, because that gives right. you access to the land. In yes. fact, I'm looking forward to this uh, latest, newest Hollywood movie. Because that's about genocide, right? Well, of course. But it's, right. it, it, it's, it's going to talk about a plot for European men to marry Native American women and then kill them. <laughs> and then, uh, you know have access to the land. So that, that's obviously irrational uh, to, to a certain extent. So irrationality is built into the system. I'm not sure if the intense religiosity of the United States helps to curb that irrationality, to speak euphemistically. Mm -hmm. But once again, I'm treading carefully because I'm not just an analyst, I'm a, I'm a political person, and I don't necessarily want to alienate potential allies mm -hmm. Shall we say? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to have a just something on you said, veering slightly off politics, uh, off elections actually. But since we have a historian with us, given the um, you mentioned some of the tensions perhaps that can exist between different black immigrant groups, and we know the rise of you know American descendants of slaves oh, and yes. and if and foundational black Americans. Mm -hmm. Just in terms of building solidarity and sort of easing these tension between. African-Americans and continental Africans and Caribbeans, what advice would you give? Well, there needs to be a better understanding of history. I mean, for example, as I, I mentioned my, my next book on Washington, D.C., and this book, I think, shows definitively and conclusively 
that the retreat of Jim Crow, which means in a sense, the betterment of life chances for many black Americans, that is to say, descendants of enslaved Africans in North America, that it's a global process, as I just suggested. It implicates people from Africa. Recall my previous discussion about Howard University, for example, African-Caribbean students. So it's, it's a global process. And so it's not just a process of descendants of enslaved Africans in North America acting on their own. I mean, it was, it was an alliance. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, I oftentimes refer to some unfortunate statements by the Black actor, who I believe has British roots, David O'Yellowell, who played Martin Luther King in Selma. He was quoted as saying, hopefully it was a misquote, that one of the reasons he does so well in the United States is that he doesn't get caught up in all this, you know, this race stuff that these U.S. Negroes are involved in. People, including myself, consider that to be quite insulting. It reminded me of when I was living in Zimbabwe in the, in the 90s, and the settlers used to try to come to me and say, why can't these Africans here in Zimbabwe be like you? You know, you're hardworking. I mean, that was ludicrous. I mean, first of all, it was ridiculous. And second of all, it was obviously a sort of a divide and conquer, trying to get me not to identify with the Africans in what was once Rhodesia. So I would say that all sides really need to study. I mean, basically, that's easy for a professor to say, since that's what I do for a living. But in any case, I think there's a lot of ignorance that uh, helps to propel. I mean, for example, if reparations to descendants of enslaved Africans arrives in North America, in the United States, it won't be exclusively because Black Americans struggle exclusively. It'll be part of a global process. I mean, you got a right-wing settler majority in this country. And so to get hist history shows to get them to retreat you need to mobilize on a global level. So I th I th I'm not sure if if the foundational Black Americans or ADOS, et cetera, I'm not sure if, if they're altogether aware of that. Or perhaps, on the other hand, they're overreacting on a subjective level to the kinds of platitudes and ethos that's reflected those unfortunate comments by David O'Yellowell and perhaps others. Mm. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I mean, in the spirit of it, talking about internationalism, I wanted to dial it back. And it, at the beginning, when I asked the opening question about electoral politics, and we decided to narrow the scope to uh, the U.S. For, this, for the sake of being able to, to better speak on the, on the question, I did want to take it to the international question as well. And I didn't want to talk about electoral politics outside of the U.S. And so I, I want to talk about the recent election results of Brazil, where Lula da Silva mm. uh, has triumphed earlier this year. Colombia saw the election of Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez. These are examples of huge triumphs for the left in Latin America. Do you think the scope of electoral politics in Latin America and other places outside of the U.S. have a greater capacity for progressive politics? And do you think these recent wins in Latin America mean anything for domestic fight 
against neo-fascism in this country? Well, first of all, with regard to Brazil, that allows me to circle back and raise the question of religion once again. I host interviews on KPFK in Los Angeles, kpfk.org streaming, or if you're in LA, 90.7 FM, and it's Saturdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern or New York time. And we're doing an interview this coming Saturday, which you can tell, say the date, whatever that is, this coming Saturday, I guess the 21st, 20th, I guess the, the 19th. And I'm interviewing a Brazilian political analyst who talks about the victory of Lula in the context of religion, because there's been a surge of popularity of Protestant evangelical Christianity. Brazil, as you know, was colonized by Iberian or Portuguese Catholics. But of late, the Protestants have been surging, and they're oftentimes to the right of the Catholics. Interestingly enough, according to this analyst, I'm saying according to this analyst because I'm not necessarily going to validate this proposition that she stated, but according to this analyst, Protestant evangelical Christianity has made significant inroads amongst the Black population. As you know, Brazil has the largest Black population outside of West Africa, outside of Nigeria. And this then helps to create a basis for them to vote for Bolsonaro, the Trump of the tropics, the conservative, according to this analyst. And I found that shocking and startling. And perhaps I shouldn't even repeat it since I'm not going to validate it. But it's something to investigate for those in your audience. Having said that, it's apparent that the victory of Lula in Brazil, the victory of Petro in Colombia, the steadfastness of Maduro in Venezuela, and of course, reference here, the recent summit between Petro and Maduro in Caracas, where the line was that they're one people, but two nations, which is a real turnabout because Colombia had been a spearhead against mm -hmm. Maduro under previous President Duque. And now there's an apparent turnabout. So that combined with the fact that AMLO, the president of Mexico, the, the largest Spanish-speaking population nation and planet Earth, is having a summit of Latin American nations with many of these left-leaning leaders. Obviously, it's a slap in the face of the U.S.-dominated organization of American states. Recall how when Mr. Biden had the so-called Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles some weeks ago that Cuba was not invited. I don't think that AMLO is going to make that same mistake. And I would like to think that this turn to the left in the hemisphere will have impact on the United States. I'm not sure if it will. I am pleased by the fact that, at least thus far, there has not been a coup attempt against Lula. He doesn't take office until January 1, in part because after the results were announced, you had congratulatory messages, not only from President Xi of China, but also Mr. Biden. And perhaps that helped to stay the hand of the coup mongers in Brazil. 
least I would like to think that's the case. And these are very important elections because as you look around the world, we don't necessarily see this sort of shift to the right. Look at the elections in Israel, for example. Uh, Israel is shifting even further to the right than it has been historically with the return to office of Mr. Netanyahu in coalition uh, with ultra-right forces who we had thought were fringe forces, but they're now going to be part of a governing coalition. Look at the Swedish Democrats. We had thought that Sweden was the poster child for social democracy, but that is difficult to say nowadays. Look at Rishi Sunak in in London. Look at Mr. Macron in France, for example. Look at parties of the right in Japan, for example. So this shift in Latin America is welcome. Hopefully, I can say that it will have knock-on effects positively. Uh, For example, what Lula did during his first tenure as president was increase legations and missions on the African continent and increase solidarity and aid to nations like Angola and Mozambique, but not only Angola and Mozambique. So hopefully this trend in Latin America will have uh, positive knock-on effects uh, in Africa. And if so, it can't come a, a moment too soon in light what's happening in the United States, what's happening in Israel, what's happening in certain parts of Europe. I wanted to, so I think a lot of this conversation has kind of centered around like the the effects with, you know, the, the limits and the abilities of electoral politics, uh, both domestically and internationally. But I wanted to like take conversation even further and talk about the state. And some on the left may say that there is something inherently problematic about a state apparatus that, you know, even if a state uh, is at the will of the working class, you know, that would not be enough because the problem is the state. You know, the state is 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 the source of our ills. What do you think about this? What, what do you think the role of the state is in any sort of pursuit of progressive politics or increasing the the well-being of working and poor people, colonized people, racialized people? Well, I think that until the state begins to wither away, which it very well may do, there are social scientists who say that it will, but that moment has not arrived as of November 2022, which suggests that then there becomes a struggle for hegemony with regard to control of the state, with regard to allocation of state resources towards the poor and towards the working class, uh, towards universal health care, towards free education, not only K through 12, but post K through 12. And that presupposes a certain kind of organization, uh, that is to say, working class organization, organization of the poor, that's problematic and difficult nowadays because the class project has taken some very severe blows in recent decades. That's one of the recent talk I gave on fascism by Zoom before an audience gathered for the University of Colorado. I suggested that the class project has retreated so severely 
in recent decades that you might have a recrudescence of the kind of religious bigotry we thought had disappeared hundreds of years ago. I mean, here's one example amongst many. You have this official in Georgia who's been stigmatizing Catholics uh, on a Protestant basis, saying that they're the products of superstition. I mean, this is the world that we're living in right, right now. And so I think that it is possible that the state will wither away at some point. I don't necessarily see the state is inherently problematic. I'm not an anarchist, for example. Mm-hmm. I think that the Cuban state has helped to repel U.S. imperialism, and that's a good thing. I think that the state in Cuba has tried to provide social welfare benefits to the poor and working class of Cuba. I think that that's, that's a good thing. And in fact, if there was not a strong and competent state backed up by working class organization in Cuba, Cuba would be a neo-colony right now. So a neo-colony of U.S. imperialism right now, that would not be a good thing. So when we talk about the state, I think that that once again, context is all. Thank you for that. Thank Thank you, you, sir. Thank you so much. And I guess um, in closing, so thinking about, I know, going back in time a little bit but Bernie Sanders and the DSA now and people who call themselves social democrats some of the time those who purport to be on the left will speak about well electing these people who are social democrats social democrats maybe their international politics are horrendous and oftentimes they're voting along lines that increase militarization however in the short term or at least domestically these will be net benefits for working class people by voting these politicians in the u.s what would your response be to that well once again it's complicated now i said a moment or two ago that i'm a politico which means that you know i'm not just a theoretician and a scholar i'm trying to build coalitions and so (laughs) it's you know, I'm not going to be like the, the, these people I was just complaining about, say, a, a bourgeois politician who says, well, actually, I read some of Gerald Horn's work, and I think it's, you know, it, I can learn from it. Then mm-hmm. Gerald Horn will say, phooey! <laughs> I don't like <laughs> I don't like you for praising me. <laughs> so I, I, I don't want to be in, in, in that sort of uh, position where, to turn the coin over, where I'm, I'm trying to ally and build an anti-fascist front with social democrats, then I'm going to denounce them. You know, mm-hmm. they, they may not look at that too kindly. But having said that, let me agree with you. Perhaps that provides me some cover. What I mean is some of these positions that our social democratic friends take on foreign policy really need some revamping. Uh, I don't think that many of them have thought through the consequences of supporting a NATO proxy war in Ukraine, for example. I I know for a fact that not only social democrats, but others who consider themselves to the left of social democrats, who consider themselves to be, say, pro-China, for example, I don't think that they realize that Russia is seen as just a hurdle to overcome before you reach the big enchilada, which is China. And so if you're taking this anti-Moscow line but you think you're being pro-Beijing, I think that that's incons- inconsistent and incoherent. You have to see the linkage between the two. Having said that, the problem in the United States, once again, 
is class collaboration or is a problem. That is to say, a significant percentage of the Euro-American working class and even the Euro-American poor and unemployed refuse to play a positive and progressive role. And that then limits the rest of us because that limits us, I'm afraid to say, to say that, well, I think that Bernie Sanders is a step forward from Joseph R. Biden, despite the fact that Mr. Sanders may have some flaws, shall we say, euphemistically, with regard to foreign policy. But I said just the other day, who was I talking to yesterday? I was talking to, God, it seems so long ago. Anyway, I was having an interview yesterday. Oh, yes, it was a KPFK benefit, which you can probably find online. And what I mentioned in that interview, I'll mention here, which is that the counter-revolutionaries, of which there are many in the United States, they take a step-by-step approach to counter-revolution. That is to say, they support Trump. They don't necessarily see Trump as the end-all and be-all, but they see him as a useful tool to bring counter-revolution one or two steps closer. Then you have revolutionaries. I wrote a book about William Patterson, uh, who was a black communist in the United States who led the campaign on behalf of the Scottsboro Nine in the 1930s, which was a major blow against U.S. apartheid. Uh, I argue that it was probably the most significant blow because it globalized the question and internationalized the question of U.S. Jim Crow, just like uh, apartheid in South Africa was globalized and internationalized before 1994 in the first democratic elections. And of course, Patterson, like many revolutionaries, didn't necessarily see revolution as part of a big bang, that the United States is a reactionary country today, but then we wake up tomorrow and it's a revolutionary country. He saw things as taking place step by step towards revolution, just like counter-revolutionaries today they see counter-revolution as a step-by-step process. And so I would say that with regard to our social democratic friends, that like Lenin, the author or the engine of the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, which transformed the world, that we, particularly people on the left in the settler colonial regime, we should try to forge alliances with allies, even if we do not necessarily agree with those allies on every single issue. I mean, that's the nature of a united front, in fact. United front politics is that you unite with regard to those issues on which you agree and continue to have discussions and even debates about issues on which you do not have agreement. Thank you so much. Once again, this has been an extremely generative conversation. Please like, comment, subscribe on where you listen to your podcast. Until next time, peace out.